You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on the show, Chad Sutton. Chad is a full-time real estate investor based out of Nashville and is one of the managing partners for Quadro Capital. Quadro Capital is a real estate investment firm that focuses on multifamily investments throughout the Southeast. And even though he is in his early 30s, he's retired from his W-2 world. Um, But beyond being a a, a full-time real estate investor, Chad also has the cutest baby girl, Claire, who ironically is the only kid I've ever met that's willing to share their mac and cheese. So kudos on raising a good kid there. But Chad's going to tell his story way better than I can. I want you as a listener to pay close attention to his story about taking down a Knoxville deal and some of the challenges he faced early in 2020. But before we get into that, Chad, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I feel like it was just yesterday we were having that lunch and you were watching my baby girl pound mac and cheese. That is her (laughs) favorite food group, you know, and uh, yeah, that's really what this is all about, right? Like a true champ, like a true champ. So Chad, we like to start with the most difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? My favorite ice cream. So I am being a Nashville native. There is a place called Jenny's. And at that place called Jenny's, that is the best ice cream in the world. There is a white chocolate mint. And that is absolutely seasonal. It makes me so sad when it disappears, but it is absolutely the best ice cream on the planet. I don't care what your thoughts are. It's better. So <laughs> I, I can concur, concur. Jenny's is a fantastic place. Um, so you already answered, I think the next question that I normally ask people is oh. toppings or no toppings. Mm, Jenny's no toppings. doesn't do toppings. I don't no. need toppings <laughs> for no. that. It's that good. It's that good. So tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do? What do I do? Well, these days I am what you would refer to as a multifamily syndicator. I basically, uh, I learned long ago that it's, it is better to spread your risk and invest with a group than it is to, you know, be the only capital partner and member on a team of an investment. So basically I specialize in sourcing, uh, apartment complexes that are not in distress, but not optimally run. You know, we have this very specific avatar that we like to buy. And we then pull in uh, people who are, you know, I guess termed an investor and would bring private equity and sometimes expertise. And we would take down the deal together as a group. So I basically form small companies repetitively because that's what an apartment is. It is a small business that generates revenue and it happens to have an asset behind it. Um, you're the first person to bring that up on the show, and that's the exact way to look at it. I love it. Where did yes. your real estate journey begin, though? Tell us about your first deal. Well, um, so it began, we have a saying here in Nashville that it takes 10 years to become an overnight sensation. You know, um, People always see your success, but so truly, I think our, our public success has been mainly from, from late 2019 on, but our success prior to that was behind the scenes investing with our own money and you know things like that really learning how to do this getting educated so i'll say that the journey for me started probably in late 2017 is when i personally started my partners have been in it for anywhere between 6 and 18 years so i'm i'm the baby in the family if you will uh, but I, I learned that i was you always want to be the dumbest kid in the room if you can help it right that's how you get better um so you know, formed that team in 2020, 
I think I really started to learn about real estate and ask questions about it when I read this book. I don't know if you have heard of it called Rich Dad Poor Dad. And it's never a heard of little it. thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but I read that and a number of others, and that changed my paradigm about money. I mean, you know, I, I think I told you over lunch. I looked down one day, and I was in corporate America. I was a decorated engineer, rising through the ranks. My wife was in the medical field, you know, doctor of pharmacy. And we were grossing like a quarter million bucks a year, man. We weren't getting anywhere. You know, it's like the treadmill was getting bigger and bigger, the hamster wheel, whatever you want to call it. And so that, that drove me to, to look at those, those books and figure out, you know, how do people build wealth in this country? And the common denominator was real estate. You know, simultaneously, the patriarch of my family, my grandfather, very well-respected man. He was in insurance for a long time and, and died as an investor. Um, he passed away and that forced uh, my business partner, Kim, my aunt, to actually, she's one of the five, uh, she took over that company and, and basically, you know, using her brain, I think she increased it by like 140% uh, net profit in a year. And we're like, oh my gosh, mind blown. Like, this is what you can do with these assets, you know? And so that introduced us to value add real estate. And dude, from there, it was just education, education, networking, networking. How do we scale? And we started buying apartment complexes and then quite frankly, what you realize as a deal maker is eventually you're going to run out of your own money. So you can either, you can either focus in operations and acquisitions, which is what we do and, and assemble money from people who, who want to earn a good return better than they can get in the stock market with tax benefits, but don't have the time to do what I do. Right. Or, or the, the wish to do what I do. Right. Or I can go, you know, do it like a wholesale or house flipping business and just generate cash doing that and, and invest it in my own deals. I could have done either way, but I chose this way and, and it's been much more rewarding. You know, we've been able to help a lot of people along the way. Yeah, I know. Um, one of the things I heard you say one time was that you looked at what you had and figured out how do you redistribute it? And I know that's one thing I'm yeah. learning a lot more about is like your your own funds that you have sitting right in front of you. How do you go use those funds yes. to leverage them in real estate and things like that? But did you start off into apartment complexes or did you do any single families or flips or anything like that beforehand? So my family did. My, my, the, the, the business I was telling you about, that was at one point about 60 or 70 single family homes in Waco, Texas. And so it's now down to like 35. You know, we've, we've uh, flipped some, sold some, you know, upgraded to some better assets anyway. Um, so they had, I had not. My first experience of real estate was this house you're looking at right here. I bought a 1937 historic home in Nashville, Tennessee, mainly because it's all I could freaking afford, man. I, you couldn't like I, I could not uh, uh, stomach the pricing of what property was at that time. And so my wife and I decided to buy one and do a live in flip. And what you're seeing now is not what I moved into, right? It, it is, uh, it's been completely rebuilt inside and out. I did a lot of the work. I'm very handy myself. I know what, you know, how things go together. I rewired things. I pulled permits, you know, I did everything I needed to do, you know, I hired things like painting and roofing and stuff like that. But, you know, this has been the only thing left to do. And I'm actually on the clock now because my second baby's on the way. And my wife has said, where's that kitchen getting in? Because if we don't do it now, it ain't going to happen for two years. So we're about, I've got the appliances on the way, which anyone in the business knows you can't get appliances for anything right now. So that's like, don't, those don't show up until February, but we did everything, you know, from, I, I took down walls and remodeled a beautiful staircase in the entry, remodeled the upstairs, remodeled a bathroom that was like, you know, this thick of wall construction, ridiculous. Um, and, and what I did, man, like the real value there is, I went to refinance it, you know, and, and put an, an equity line on there, which is another strategy we can talk about for redistributing cash. 
I went to refinance it. And all of a sudden my house went from being worth $440,000 to worth over 675. And I'm like, whoa, yep. you know, this just created some money. What if I sold this? That's a lot of profit. Yeah. I, um, I generally like to tell people too, if they're looking to get into real estate, that's the best way to do it. Right. Is yeah. don't go out and try to take down a million dollar deal or anything like that. Just look at a distressed yeah. house where you can get in there. You can cut your living expenses, quick cash. get some handy work done. Yes. Um, any tips on how you kind of handled that process? Cause I've done a live in flip before and, uh, there's stuff everywhere and it's not, it's not an easy job. So any tips yes. that you would provide to people that, that, uh, absolutely. That? Absolutely. So there's, there's a couple of very important things if you're going to do that. One of them is know where your HVAC is set up. So, um, for example, there's two products that I use extensively. One of them was called Ram board. It's this, uh, this big roll of effectively really tough cardboard. And I've got these beautiful hardwood floors. I don't want to mess them up. They were here. Right. So I laid down this Ram board and duct taped it to the, to the walls, you know, in the rooms we were working and I had this nice work path that went outside. There's another thing called zip wall. And it basically, you, you just buy painter's plastic and you, you basically like, I used a strip of wood and, and, and a little nail gun and tacked it, you know, on the door frame and got it in place. And then you cut a hole in it and there's this zipper that adheses in place so you can zip in and out. Well, that really helps with dust collection. Because yes. once you start tearing into stuff, dust gets everywhere. And if you let it penetrate your house, you'll never get it out. Yeah. Um, and, and so beyond that, if you're working in a room, you need to seal off the air vent. And especially if it's got a return air there, you may have to turn off your HVAC or something, but you really don't want all that dust getting in your ductwork because you'll never get it out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so like th sand those are at the beach. Exactly, exactly. So th that's, th that's probably the biggest consideration is you really just want to isolate the space you're working so you don't trash the rest of your house, you know, and, yep. and clean up every day. Like it, it gets really, it gets really dirty really, really quickly. Tools are everywhere. Cleanliness is key because you don't have a lot of workspace, you know, and um, yeah, yep. so thinking yep. back to those days. <laughs> so you buy your house, you do a renovation, you go to the bank, you're like, whoa, I've, I've forced a lot of appreciation here. Maybe I should yeah. be doing this more on a bigger scale. How did you make that shift from, uh, you know, live and flip to uh, apartments? Well, so I started looking around Nashville. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, next step. Let's go do one and sell it. Wow, I'm going to get rich tomorrow. It's great, or in three months. Um, and I started to figure out that it was really, this, just because single family homes are priced based on sales comps. So when you have people coming, you know, selling their 1200 square foot house in Los Angeles for, you know, 4 million bucks and they come to Nashville and buy the same house for, for half a million bucks, like, Oh, this is great. I'll pay 600 and win it from this guy. No problem. So that happened and sales comps were just through the roof. So it was very difficult to be able to come across something where I could just go and pick it up where I needed to put the money in it and go flip it right for a good margin. Um, so that frustrated me because it, it's a very active business and it's not really something you can, you can, I guess, but it's not really something where you can like live in Nashville and start flipping in Atlanta, Georgia. It's just, there's too much hands-on. Right. Um, so that didn't really work. And then simultaneously, this is when my partner was, you know, overtaking the single family business there. So I started looking for rentals as well, that you know, similar pr price problem. And then a friend of mine who was hugely successful in multifamily real estate, I asked him, I was like, how did you, how did you start buying these big properties? And, you know, he said, I, I have friends who have known me my entire life and not once has anyone asked me what I do. Thank you for that. So he handed me a book. It's on my shelf over here. You notice all those books over there called multifamily millions by david lindall 
And he said, read this book. And if you understand it and you want to learn more, come back to me. So I did. I couldn't put it down. And it basically talks about, you know, how you assemble deals and like how people actually go buy a $10 million property. Because like most of your listeners, if if they're like me, they're like, there's no way I'm ever going to have enough money to buy that, right? Well, you're wrong. I'm doing it right now. At 32 years old, I'm buying a $9 million building that I'm closing on at the end of the month. So it can be done. You just have to know how. And that led to, okay, well, these are big enough that they can support their own staff. So this building I'm buying is in Decatur, Georgia. It's not even remotely close to me, but I don't have to be there to run the operations day to day. I'm hiring a best in class company to do that. And we are, you know, we are budgeting for all that as we're building this little business, right? And so that led to go to every seminar you can find, talk to every expert you can find, you know, much like you're doing, right? And just, just, just talk and learn. And that process took about a year before, because not only do you have to learn, you have to get enough street cred to where a broker is going to trust you enough to say, yes, I will go on a limb and put my neck out for you and tell my seller that I'm going to trust you to be the one to buy this property. And it's not like a single family home where you can just like, oh, the buyer fell out. I'll go get another one tomorrow. Like these take three to six months to close. So it's a big freaking deal if the buyer doesn't perform. Yeah, you know? there's there's really two things I would take out of that is one, you mentioned that single family is all based off of the comps of the house next to it. So what oh, that I didn't means complete for, that complete that for me. <laughs> would say, yeah. So for everybody out there that's listening, your value of your single family, if you're in this in that space is only going to be as high as somebody's willing to pay for a similar house next door or in the same vicinity and things like that. The difference between multifamily is like you mentioned at the beginning, it's a small business. And small business have income, expenses, and then they have profit. And what you can run that profit at is what people are willing to buy multifamily at. So essentially, yes. you can increase revenue, you can decrease expenses, and you can get a better return on that asset because you're running that business better. The second thing I really want to touch on and that I think you can add a lot of value to uh, helping all of us understand is team. So when you're in the multifamily space and you're doing $9 million deals that are states away and things like that, it's a team sport. Yes. How do you, how did you at Quattro Capital go figure out who's on your team, what responsibilities everybody has and things like that? So I'm going to say there's levels of team and I need, I need to, people, people who teach this stuff, they don't mention this enough that when I say team, I don't necessarily mean employee, right? I'm not hiring all these people, right? So in Quattro Capital, we have five managing partners. That is all we have in Quattro Capital. We do not have employees. We never will. We don't want to, right? I don't want to deal with payroll tax. Um, but what we, what we do, so I, I, I kind of lead acquisitions. I, you know, having that recovering engineer brain, right? It, it, I'm very good with numbers. I, I know how things go together. I can look at a building and walk through with some experts and figure out what it's going to cost to do what I need to do and how long it's going to take. So that is essential in putting together business plans that you can stand behind and they're going to execute as you say they will. Um, so my main play is on that front end. You know, I, I, I work with neg finding, negotiating the deal, you know, building those broker relationships, uh, you know, building up that trust so that they, they trust me as a buyer. Um, and then I take that deal all the way, you know, through, <clears throat> through the closing period. Um, my, so the, the two family members in the business, so Tammy is my mother, Kim is, is, uh, is my aunt, her sister. 
uh, Kim is because of the, you know, what she had to do in the family business, you know, she learned asset management very early. So she is very good operationally. She can drive. I mean, dude, before this, she used to drive multi-billion billion with a B dollar contracts to perform in the, in the IT industry. She knows how to, how to, that's a small know, number. Yeah. The feds exactly. out there buying trillions. <laughs> yeah. So it's no, no big deal. So yeah. she, uh, she's our asset management specialist. Um, Tammy is kind of between, so she, she support, and, and it's because acquisitions versus operations that ebbs and flows, depending where you are on your deal cycle. Um, you know, how many you've bought versus how many you sold. So Tammy, she's a, a switch hitter and she plays in the, the closing process. So she's very good at, at working with lenders and getting the loan closed, you know, getting, taking over a property, like getting through those first 90 days, which are critical to get operations and expectations set. But she also supports Kim on the asset management side and is kind of moving into a leadership role there as well. And then you have Dr. Aaron Hudson and Maurice Philogene, uh, who are probably our two most experienced players in terms of time. They've, they've been in this the longest. Uh, they've got quite a platform, both of them. And so a lot of people know, like, and trust them. So at this point, they spend most of their time, you know, uh, sourcing private equity. Now that is that is building relationships with people like you and me who have you know fifty to one hundred and I don't know two hundred thousand dollars to invest, and you know <clears throat> people have to know like and trust you. Uh, emphasis on know they got to know you first before they can like and trust you, in order to um, you know prove to them that we are the right fit where we can help each other you know achieve our goals, and and they're also talking with people like. Um, you know, institutional money, like when, when you're going after a, let's say you're going after a, a $10 million deal, right? You got to bring, call it 3 million to the table. It's a little impractical to go get that from, from like, what is that? 40, 30, $50,000 yeah. investors or something like that, or 60, I guess. Um, so you really want to get someone to write, or let, let's go even bigger. Let's say you're doing a $50 million deal. You need $10 million in equity you want to get one or two people to write about $8 million worth of check. And you want to go raise the remaining 2 million from smaller investors. Right. So, so they, they really specialize in assembling that equity structure and sourcing where our capital is coming from. He's like, there's, there's two ways to add value in this business. You add value or you grow equity. Right. And, and there is, you know, people aren't giving us money. We're giving them a business opportunity. Right. And they, like there's so much capital looking for a better return that most people don't have access to, you know, just investing in mutual funds in the stock market. And that's what they specialize in is how do, how do we find the right money that's looking for what we're providing, you know, and matching deal to equity because they're all a little bit different. Yeah, I love um, that add value or grow yeah. equity piece of it. Yeah. It's just, it sounds like you guys took a look internally at your skill sets and yes. where everybody had experience and you just kind of map that out. And for those of you listening on the phone, I guarantee you have some sort of skill set that maps well, or maybe Chad is looking for in his business, or I would be looking for in my business, et cetera, that you don't even know you have yet, but when you're around other people, it'll naturally come out. So that that's key there. Um, I think one of the things that you've done really well, though, is grow your network in such a short yes. period of time. And you've been able to, to build broker relationships and grow investor relationships and things like that. For somebody that's out there listening and they want to start growing their network, what are some tips that you would offer them? So, and before, 
so before I do that, I didn't finish what I was saying before because I, I left you with, two, with a critical missing point. The rest of the team, and this will be 30 seconds or less, the rest of the team are the ones who are not part of Quattro. And that is the, uh, you know, the, the property management companies who are really, it's like, do you want to put a drunk teenager behind the wheel of your Ferrari or an experienced race car driver? That, that's the analogy. You got to hire the right company. You got you to have the right brokers. You got to have the right mortgage originators, like all those insurance guy, right? All those people, those are your team. Okay. So back to this, we're not doing everything yeah. we're delegating. Um, but back to growing your network, I would say number one is, you know, get a little bit of confidence in yourself and post about stuff on social media. You, you, you cannot underestimate, and I'm, I'm even learning this now. My partner has been ragging on me for a year to be better at this. You cannot underestimate what a social media presence will do for you, right? If you're learning about this stuff, if you're researching, like most people don't understand this stuff and they don't know people like you and me and, and your listeners, right? So put it out there. Don't be afraid of what your friends are going to think. You know, don't, don't give too, you know, don't give two cares in the world about what comments are going to come your way. Right. Put it out there. Cause I guarantee for every one, one hater, there's about 10 people who are really loving it. Right. And so use Instagram, use Facebook, use LinkedIn. Don't send out mass things like, like those mass LinkedIn messages. I just posted about that yesterday. It yeah, frustrates me. So you see that yeah, I, I literally looked at my, I looked at my LinkedIn inbox. So it's like, I'm really trying to be intentional with social media this year. It's on my goals and objectives. And so they're all on my, my main home screen and I pull up LinkedIn. There's 23 messages. And I looked at them and a, not a single one was not a mass message. Yeah. I'm like, guys, learn how to network. This is ridiculous. So anyway, so do that. And in pre-COVID times, I would have said, go to every meetup you can find, right? Find a topic you're interested in. If it's real estate, if it's stocks, if it's cryptocurrency, whatever it is, go to, go to meetups and meet other people who have that common interest. If there's not one, start one, right? You'd be surprised who come, comes out of the woodwork for that. You know, go to like <clears throat> all these mentorship things, like you, you see uh, boot camps and you see, um, you know, mentorship programs and all, all those different things. Now, understand you, you spend what you, what you can afford to spend, right? I mean, some of those things get pretty expensive, but you can find them from, you know, a hundred bucks to 10,000 and more. It just depends what you're doing, but um, go to those things because not only is the education valuable, the network is valuable. Like you find some pretty powerful players in the industry that attend those kind of, of conferences and, and, and events like that. So I would just say like figure out where the people you're the avatar you're looking for plays and immerse yourself, you know? Yeah. I want to double down on that events thing. Cause I went to my first event last year. Um, I've, I'm done a lot of books and networking and listening to podcasts and all that kind of stuff. But I went to my first networking event this year and um, it is a little uh, scary, right? You walk into a room, you don't know anybody and all that kind of stuff. All I did was really take note of who was speaking, who was on stage and things like that. And I just started reaching out to them. And I can say confidently that my network has grown 20 fold since doing that. And yeah. I read something in a book the other day that was talking about, you know, just picture you're at the top of this mountain and it's a snowy mountain and you've got to push a snowball down the hill. And one of them's like one positive decision and one of them is a negative decision. In this case, it was a positive decision of going to the networking event and the negative decision not going to the networking event. All I did was push that little snowball down the hill of the positive event. And it's amazing what's love come of it. So um, oh my gosh, I, I, I love that. I'm gonna steal yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, I stole it from someone else. So I think yeah, Abe Lincoln pay, pay it forward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I love that. When when you mention your LinkedIn messages, I I get a ton of those too, and it is yeah. kind of frustrating to kind of sift through those. 
how could somebody separate themselves if they were trying to separate themselves in, in, in their LinkedIn message to you or to reaching out to someone? Well, so number one, LinkedIn messages have just become so flooded that it usually takes me a couple of weeks to get to them anyways. Cause like you said, I have to weed through the others and there's not a good filter. Um, but on the, on the rare occasion that I stop and read one, they've either attached a video or they have, um, you know, or they like, I can, you, you can tell when it's a personally written message versus something that they've automatically inserted my name 100%. in a generic message, right? hundred percent. Be, be personal. Like, you know, I, I guarantee if, if you take the time to reach out to 50 people personally versus 500, uh, you know, automatically, so to speak, you know, with, with an automated tool, you're probably going to get at least two X the response rate on those 50, you know, than you would on the 500, you know, and, and it's, uh, and, and they're going to be more quality type things. So, um, and, and never leave with a pitch yeah. ever. If, if you're immediately saying, Hey, how you doing? How would you like to make a million bucks in the first, like delete, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The thing I would say there too, is I got connected with you because we're going to bridge into the Knoxville property that you guys took yeah. down. But being from East Tennessee and growing up in East Tennessee and living in Nashville for so long, if I ever hear someone on a podcast and they say Nashville, East Tennessee, Iron Man, which I'm a big fan of, Austin, Texas, which I lived in for a while, Florida, where my parents live, that's just an easy door opener right there. It's just something as simple as, hey, Chad, you on this podcast. Yeah. Lo- I, I invest in the Knoxville area as well. <clears throat> would love to learn more about your 2021 goals and see how we could potentially work together in the future. The word you said right there is commonality, like yeah. build commonality. That that's, that's how you get to camaraderie and that's how you get to the no like and trust pyramid. Like whatever, whether you're trying to get someone to invest with you or just like buy something from like whatever it is, or, or even just, you know, like you enough to click accept your friend request, right? Yeah. You just have to build that, that commonality. And then that leads to no like and trust and that's, that's the pinnacle of a relationship right there, right? So 100%, 100%. So I want to switch gears on you real quick and talk about the Knoxville property. Because man, when I heard this story, it's just super impressive to to hear about the persistence and all that. So first off, you mentioned an avatar that you have when you're looking at properties, and your avatar is actually a little bit different than I've ever heard anybody talk about. Can you talk just a, a just a touch on what your avatar is and why it's important to have an avatar? Absolutely. And, and I was going to, so first of all, why it's important to have an avatar and, and, you know, it frustrated me when my coach said this in the beginning, when I was first starting out trying to find, you know, multifamily properties, but there are literally so many markets and so many deals that you can't possibly look at them all. And you're going to make a mistake. If you try looking at all asset classes, all types of, or all, all stages of asset classes and all locations. Right. So number one is at least when you're starting, like we watch about eight markets now, but you know, when we were starting out, we watched one market. That market was Knoxville, Tennessee. And just get to know that market because as you know, I mean, go to Memphis. If you're in Memphis, if you buy one street to the wrong direction, it's a whole different world, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to know your market. You have to know your area. At this point, we just kind of hire players to help us know those. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, but so you pick a market. That's, that's you know, shade of avatar number one. And then you have to pick an asset class. Like, okay, like there's a lot of commercial real estate. There's even single family real estate. Like, am I buying houses? Am I buying apartments? Am I buying strip centers? Am I buying the Eiffel Tower? Like, what am I buying? You know, it's all real estate. 
So we chose multifamily and that is because of basically the demographic shifts and the supply and demand imbalance that makes multifamily a good investment for a long time to come because affordable housing is a problem in this country. Um, further from that, we specialize, properties are ranked A, B, C, D. Uh, a being the best new luxury expensive property, D being the slumlord war zone, you don't want to go there at night, you know, type of thing. B and C's are kind of in the middle, you know, B's are your, your a little older building, but still nice, you know, it still has a mixture of white and blue collar workers, your C class is typically renters by, by, you know, so those are renters by choice, your C class are usually renters by necessity, they'll never be able to buy a house, right, so we, we tend to play in the upper C, lower B area, um, just, and the reason is, uh, when, when times are good, people move, uh, move from the lower class properties up into your property. And when times are bad, they move out from their $1,500 a month luxury condo down into your apartment. So you're always full. Can know? I say something real quick on that? C-class yeah. properties and multifamily were the only ones to be able to raise rents in 2020. So yes. That's a perfect and I was one example. of those. Yeah. I was one of those and see the smile perfect on my face. Example. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, exactly. And that's because supply and demand went up or supply, excuse me, demand went up for a limited supply. That's why that's fundamental economics, y'all. Um, so from there, I don't just buy any BNC property. I love stabilized properties. Stabilized meaning they're greater than 85% occupied. They have at least a six month track record of, of, you know, strong collections. Those are easier because if I can buy those and it's like, all I have to do is raise rents a little bit, maybe do some renovations, add in a minute. Those are easy, right? So I like those if I can get them for a good price, but those usually go for more money because, you know, the, the risk is lower. High risk, high, you know, uh, high reward. What we more typically go for is what I'd call a medium to hard reposition. And that is going to be a property where it, it's probably going to need the majority of the tenant base to be turned over because it, it's, uh, you know, it's, let's say it's just kind of fallen in disrepair. They're letting people with no credit in, nobody's paying rent, you know, so it's kind of the thing where you kind of have to get the, the, the cockroach residents out. I hate to say it that way, but there are people who just game the system and they hop apartment to apartment, you know? Um, so you, you get those out, you keep the good residents, and then you start building a better resident base and you're renovating the whole time. And eventually you have this asset that is, you know, 30, 40, 50% more profitable than it was before. And you just created value. You created a stable asset. So that's really what we like to do. And I think what you're going for from there, it's how big of an asset. So with all that in mind, we specifically target properties below 150 units. And honestly, I haven't bought anything greater than 110. Um, <clears throat> the reason is there is a lot of institutional money out there like REITs and funds and all that kind of stuff. And they've got 6 million bucks they need to place yesterday, you know, and they'll go overpay for a property all day long. So in order to get those bigger assets, I have to, I have to compress my, my equity a lot because I have to pay too much for it, you know, and that, that's a relative term, you know, but I think we're paying too much for them. When we play in the smaller realm and even in the sub 100s, those are usually owned by high net worth individuals or mom and pops who bought it as an income stream and either run it into the ground or just don't run it efficiently. And, you know, they're like doing their church donation out of it and paying for the kids soccer out of it and, you know, stuff like that. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so we, we look for properties specifically with those characteristics that have deferred maintenance that, that don't have an optimal tenant base and, and are not being run well. 
And we, we come in with operational rigor. We come in with a good management company. We come in with rules and, and regulations and, and we turn that sucker into a cash flowing property that looks nice that you can be yep. proud of. So that, that's really yeah. how we do it. I think one of the reasons why I love the market that you all focus on is one, you can add a ton of value there, right? By stabilizing the property. And again, multifamily is all about running a small business. If you can increase the profit by either increasing the revenue or reducing the expenses, you're going to get a better asset value when you go to disposition or go to sell that. That's property. right. But two, for, for our listeners out there that aren't familiar with multifamily, usually about a hundred units, you can start paying for a property manager and a maintenance staff. So when you talk to a lot of investors, they say, I focus on a hundred units and up, but to your point, there's a lot of institutional money out there that's got a couple billion in the bank that they need to deploy this month to get it off yeah. of their books and they're willing to go overpay for that. So yeah. when I heard you all specifically talk about, hey, if we can go capture three 30 unit yeah. properties within a mile radius, that's basically the same thing. And we'll just have them hop between properties. That just blew my mind. As really I can't believe I didn't strategy. mention that. As soon as you started saying this, I was like, I know where he's going. That's what he wanted me to say. But we... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So the, the, the rest of the strategy is we're not scared. A lot of those institutional buyers, they won't buy something that can't support its own payroll because they don't ever want to visit the property. Exactly. Right? Um, we're not scared of that. We, we've bought 12. I just closed on a 12 unit on, on December 31st. It was our eighth acquisition of 2020. You know, we have done 22 unit, 35 unit, 42 unit. Like, you know, we, we do all these smaller properties, but just think about it. Big, think bigger. Don't think about that one property go in there and sell your management company the idea that, Hey, I'm going to go buy four or five more of these. And, and, yep. you know, we, we need to go ahead and hire somebody. Love it. And so, yeah, we, you know, we've got 154 units in Knoxville to date uh, across seven complexes. So they're not big. And we have two full-time managers, a full-time maintenance supervisor and a crew that buzzes around doing all of our work because we, we are operating like a 154 unit complex. We have enough to do that. But guess what? I got those properties for a much better deal than I would have yep. gotten one 154 unit property. That's right. You know? And I so think the key value. there is they're not 20 miles away from each other. No, they're, they're three miles away. strategic yeah. uh, radius of, of distance. They're so close. They can, so, yeah. Um, but when you talked about, I, we talked about you closing on the Knoxville property in March. I think that's mm. a super interesting story that I, I couldn't, I would do disservice if I tried to tell it. Can you tell our listeners about that property? And the key thing I want people to listen to here is it's as good to underwrite the deal, but you also need to be underwriting the loan person as well, the financier, the bank of the property as well. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I'm going to try to go through this quickly because it is a long story, but March 18th. Okay. I have about $2.5 million hard with my team on a 67 unit portfolio in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, it's across three different properties. So it's a, you know, and it's a very astute seller. He built his family, built them in the sixties and he was actually getting ready to, uh, buy a commercial building using a 1031 exchange, which basically means he has to roll the proceeds from this deal into the next deal and not pay taxes. So he had a deal contingent upon this. <clears throat> so we're almost done. It, it is, you know, our contract expires, I think April 15th, it's March the 18th. So we had a month left. Um, we are finishing up the money's raised. You know, we have a, the lender is in the final stages of funding the deal. We were 12 days away from closing. We get a phone call. If you, anyone else remembers what happened, um, that is when the world fell apart. 
you know, the stock market fell off a cliff, lenders got scared, money started seizing up, and it was all because of COVID, right? And so our lender walks away 12 days from closing. So, so the situation is we have a quarter million dollars of non-refundable money that basically earnest money that per our contract, that's pretty regular that at certain stages in the deal, money goes non-refundable. So if we backed away at that point, we lose quarter million dollars. And our lender who their terms were completely what made us put that deal together, right? They're gone. So we did, we found ourselves about $3.8 million shy 12 days before closing, not a good place to be. So we had to negotiate an extension with the seller and knowing that he had a seller he had to negotiate with his seller made it expensive for him. He made it expensive for us or, or so we were told. Um, and so we had to put up more money to keep playing, right? Every single day we were having conversation after conversation with all the lenders in our network. We, we know a bunch and we, every day it felt like we were chasing a boulder down a hill, like or your snowball analogy, right? Of bad deeds. Uh, every day, we would talk to three lenders and every day, the next day they would stop lending. And it was just like chasing a boulder down the hill as the market seized up. And so eventually, you know, we found ourselves 10 or 12 days in, we've paid more money to extend the contract. And there's just no end in sight. Like, like no one's wanting to give us a loan that's reasonable. The predatory lenders are now out where we have to pay like three points. And they're like, yeah, we'll close tomorrow for three points and 12% and full personal guarantee. Like they're just waiting for me to mess up, to take that loan, take that deal back. Um, we call that lend to own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, we had a lot of midnight gut check calls of like, good Lord, can, do we really need to do this? Or do we need to just take a loss and preserve investor capital and live to fight another day? You know? This, losing as bad as it would have hurt, losing a quarter million dollars is a lot better than getting into a deal and having it repossessed because you can't, you know, you can't fund the loan and they take it back. Then you lose four million dollars, right? Yeah. So, twenty sixteen hour days later, you know, we're now somewhere in April. We had to, to to sign a you know before this, we found another lender on our on the last day. We chose to make five more calls each, and on the last day, my fifth call before we gave up was to a, 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 what I thought was a bridge lender. It turns out she was a nonprofit lender um, for a mission-based group. And she actually was like, you know, um, what terms are you looking for? Okay. I think I can help you. I think I can beat that. And we actually wound up using nonprofit money that wasn't affected by COVID basically because the source of the money came from banks who were giving it to this organization in order to get a tax credit. What they're making on that loan, they want the tax credit, you know, but these guys lend it back to us, you know, to, to rehab old buildings and make affordable housing. Who's losing in that situation? The government. The government is losing tax revenue, but they are, you know, they are getting what they want, which is affordable housing. So that's why I say it is incredibly important for you to be, you know, lenders underwrite you to see if you can perform. You need to be asking the same questions to them because if, if their funding source dries up, they're no good to you and they can get you in a, a world of trouble because when that lender walked away, they didn't care about our contract. They didn't care what I had at risk. And oh, by the way, I wrote a $35,000 check to them you know, for, for all their third-party reports and legal work. And they wrote me a $7,130 check back and said, here's what we haven't spent. Good luck. Right. Yeah. So e even the expenses of my money that they spent, they wouldn't give that back. It was so ridiculous. But anyway, um, 
So fast forward, you know, we finally got that deal closed. We had to pay for another extension, you know, on top of that to, to now let this lender do their work. And we were supposed to close that March 30th. We closed that July 31st, almost four months later. But you know what, Matt, we did not quit. We never gave up. We never surrendered. And we just, everything is figure outable is what, you know, one thing our coach says, everything is figure outable. You can, if there is a, if you envision what you're after, you know, the hard times are going to come, but you can get there, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and I think the key there too, is every problem has five different solutions. And I yes. think we're trained to think that there's only one solution out there. So when you're going to take down a deal, you're saying, Hey, where's the GSE debt? Okay. There's no GSE debt. Then I need to go to the banks. Okay. I can't go to the banks. Let me go to the bridge loaners. Right. right. And we, we, we get stuck in thinking that there's only a couple of different ways to, to, to skin a cat. And that's amazing persistence. And I'm sure it's doing well for your portfolio and uh, you're able to do deals when other people can't, which, gives confidence to your investors, gives confidence yes. to your closers, yes. gives confidence to your brokers and everybody else down the stack. And you know what, um, what you said earlier, Matt, you know, these types of properties have actually improved and Knoxville actually is one of the best markets in the nation right now per the Moody's report for prior 12 month rent growth. They, they've yeah. continued to grow during even the, the nice properties have continued to grow during COVID. And, you know, I was looking at financials today. We took these things over average of like $450 rent you know, and I'm leasing up at 750 right now, about to bump it to eight because the market's awesome. bearing it. You know, yeah. And I'm yeah, still I have a <laughs> I have a theory on that. I think it's because all the institutional capital got their balance sheets flooded by the Fed. So they're going to every major MSA and playing there. And bigger capital is going to say, yeah. hey, we need to play in a secondary market where people like yourselves can go and say, hey, this is local. I know this market. I know right. the jobs. I know what this this is going to entail. I'll just go play over here where nobody's really playing. Exactly. So I, I, I would say don't sleep on the tertiary markets. If you're out there listening, find a good pocket of a tertiary market where you know uh, there's some good economic drivers behind it and go go play in that sandbox. Um, yes. I know we're coming up on time here, so I want to switch us to the last round here. I've got five questions that I asked everyone. I'm All right. Suggestions here if you've got a name for it after this. Um, <laughs> but the first question is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book. So I recorded a podcast earlier today and I used that one. So I need to change to another one. Um, there's a book called Who Not How, and I'm currently yeah. reading it. And that is my biggest growth point right now because I like to touch everything. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ex-doer. I'm, I'm an ex-engineer, right? Um, I'm really having to learn as we scale to enable others and lead a team, right? And, and, and empower others, even, even if they crawl before they walk and, and fall on their butt a few times. You know, you have to let people fail so they can grow. And, you know, stopping, quitting the mindset of, how am I going to get all this done? And starting asking, starting to ask who can do this for me in the right way. That's, that's the book, man. Yeah, that's right. Somebody gave me to that three years ago and I read it on a flight and I, now it's like taking yeah. off and it's everywhere. So if you haven't read it, it is definitely a fantastic read. Um, I believe you are a creature of the habits and the person you're going to be 10 years from now is, is, is directly correlated with the habits that you do today. What is something that you do every single day? So I'm a big fan of Miracle Morning. There's a guy named Hal Elrod that he has an amazing story, by the way, he wrote a book yes. called Miracle Morning. And yeah, you want to talk about you think you've had it hard, go, go yeah. read his. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I get up at 430 every single morning and people are cringing hearing this and it's not that bad. Like you, you envision what you want to get done in the morning. And I'll tell you what, that is the best quiet time. I get some of the best 
high value work done between 4.30 and 6.30 before my daughter wakes up. And part of my miracle morning, by the way, is then getting her ready for school, taking her to school, going to work out. So by the time I get to 9.30 in the morning, I've accomplished more than most people do all day, you know? And that is a great feeling. And it's such a good thing for your mindset. So that's one of them. The other, I'm actually, where's that book? I'm actually uh, doing the 75 hard program right now with some of my partners. You've probably seen me posting about that. It is hard. It is 75 days of five critical things. It is uh, taking a progress picture every day. So it helps you with the fitness part. Working out twice a day for 45 minutes, not 44, 45. Um, One of them has to be outside no matter what the weather is. Uh, It is drinking a gallon of water every day, which is why you see me drinking out of my cup over here regularly. It is, um, let's see, what what did I get? Picture. uh, No alcohol, no cheat meal. No no alcohol. Yeah, the diet. So there's no alcohol, no cheat meal. And um, the other thing is, I'm going to have to look at my list here. I can't even spit them all off right now. But the point is, it's doing five really critical things here we go. So diet, water, workout. Oh, read. You have to read at least 10 pages of an entrepreneurial self-help or, or personal development book every day. And so it's really trying to build like growth happens in the monotony, right? It, growth does not happen like a Rocky film where, you know, you have a two minute blast of awesome music and him running to the top of the hill and, you know, pumping his fists and then knocking out the dude, right? It's, um, it happens over time. And like all these little five monotonous tasks I do them every single day and I get a little bit better every single day. And, and then at the end of 75 days, like if, if you miss one day, you have to start completely over at day one, you know? So it's like going through 75 days of that, your body's going to hurt, you know, your mind's going to be fatigued, but you're going to have this clarity because you get to the point where it's like, okay, I can achieve whatever it is I want to achieve. You have that mental toughness, you know? So yep. miracle morning, mental toughness. That, that's what that's what will get you to anywhere you want to go. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the miracle morning because it's something I, I get up at 3.50 every morning. So I subscribe to oh, the riser as well. Um, <laughs> but I, I get my workout done and I believe in paying yourself. And every day somebody's going to be chipping away at your time. And people that think they're a night person, look, I, I, I'm not a night person. So maybe I just don't understand it. But I do know there's times where I get at the end of the day where I do not feel like doing anything. And that happy hour friend text or that go to dinner text comes in and you get lazy and you do that. And all of a sudden now I'm two days ahead of you if you miss that kind of thing. I read something the other day too that said, if you wake up 15 minutes early every single day for a year, that's like adding another 20 to 30 days into your your year. Just imagine what that looks like over the course of 10 years. So I'm so glad you said that. Um, What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, the best piece of advice you've ever received. It's simple, man. I, th- I think it's be present, you know, we, uh, and enjoy the, enjoy the journey because it's easy for us to look at what we want to become, you know, and you can look at like, I fully believe, like you said, you have to be today who you want to be in 10 years, right? You have to have that foresight, but you also can't like, you can't just work 200 hours a week or something, you know, impossible like that and blow your family away. You know, because then you're, you're, you're not going to have those you really care about. You, you know, you can't ignore your health because then you're, you're not going to be there to see 10 years from now, right? So, like, you have to live in balance. And it's really hard. Like, the work-life balance doesn't exist, right? But you have to find this harmony between what you care about and, and what you're trying to build professionally and things like that and really, uh, you know, really work to keep that harmony and, and be present in the moment today so that you don't, you know, you don't find yourself 
you know, 10 years from now, always trying to get to the next thing, you know, you got to yep. enjoy, enjoy the ride. There's green time and there's gold time. Green time makes you money. Gold time feels the soul. There it is. <laughs> uh, two final questions for you. What is the thing that you're most proud of in your life beyond your family, beyond your wife, beyond your daughter? Uh, I think honestly, what I am most proud of in my life is the company we've created. I mean, you know, we now manage by the end of January, it'll be about $30 million worth of property. Um, and having taken X amount of equity and turned it into a multiple of that, I think it's the coolest thing in the world to be able to create wealth, not, not accumulate it, create it. Right. And I feel like we've learned a secret that most people aspire to learn and think it's a get rich quick scheme and it's not. But when you apply the right efforts and the right knowledge, you know, you learn how to create. And, and that's, you know, it's not about the money, guys. It's about what I've created. You know, I've created freedom. I've created wealth. I've created, uh, you know, a source that helps other people get to their goals. You know, I've created safe, affordable homes where families live and take care of their kids and eat dinner and do their homework, you know, and, and it's, they're not decrepit, you know? So like, I, I just love what we've built. I think that's probably the biggest accomplishment that I've, other than my family, you, you took that away from me. So <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Um, last question. If you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, who would it be and why? Bowl of ice cream with anyone. Um, dead or alive. Dead or alive. Well, that's, that's really a, you got, you stumped me on that one. So intuitively I want to say my wife, but I know you're going to take that one away from me too. They're really, you know, that's, so I'm going to, I'm going to assume you took that away from me. Um, I would probably want to sit down with Andrew Carnegie. Right. Uh, and I'd want to pick his brain is that that is one of the Titans of, of industry, you know, and even though the rules were different back then, like, the, the difference between entrepreneur and the common person was so much greater back then. I just love to know what he knew, you know? Um, I think that would be it. With, without the, the benefit of having a smartphone, a computer, the internet, all that kind of stuff. Like we live in the best age to go do things that you want to do in life. And Gary V talks about this a lot where he's like, Hey, if you want to talk about Smurfs, there's a hundred thousand people on this planet that love Smurfs. And you can make money six figures a year talking about that. So I give you kudos to that answer. That's the first time I've heard that answer. And you're right <laughs> to build something from nothing without all the common resources yeah. we have today is truly incredible. And he gave it all away. You know, he gave I mean, it all away. Look yeah. at everything that he did with Carnegie Hall and things like that. He gave a majority of it away. So right, right. Um, fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thanks. This was a lot for me. I know I love the networking piece a lot because that's something that I'm keen on in 2021, wanting to grow my network. So appreciate your tips there. If our listeners wanted to reach out or find out more about you, what's the best way they could do that? So find us at thequatroway.com. Uh, I'm sure Matt will put that in the show notes for you, but I'll spell it here and he can edit it out if he wants to. It's uh, T-H-E-Q-U-A-T-T-R-O dot, uh, sorry, T-H-E-Q-U-A-T-T-R-O-W-A-Y.com, thequatroway.com. That will have links to our calendars. Uh, you can email us. You know, we love talking about this stuff. If you want to come in and, and partner with us on something, see what that looks like. If you're an aspiring syndicator and you need someone to sponsor a deal for you, we've done that before. And if you just want to say hello and talk about financial freedom, we love doing that too. So uh, stop in, say hello. Awesome. Chad, thanks for your time and look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Thanks, Matt. 
Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.